Hello. I'd like to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at this LSE's seventh Space for Thought Literary Festival. So my name is Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce this evening's speaker, Professor John Gray. So Professor Gray has had a long and illustrious career, both as a political philosopher and now as a full-time writer. He's held posts at Oxford and here as Professor of European Thought at LSE. His new book is entitled The Soul of the Marionette, A Short Inquiry into Human Freedom. And he's going to be speaking on this topic this evening. So Professor Gray will speak for about 45 minutes and then that will leave about half an hour, 40 minutes for questions. Um, the proceedings will be recorded and hopefully there will be a podcast available online. So you should check after the event. Uh, Professor Gray will also be signing books afterwards and that will be in the foyer outside. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danielle, for that introduction. I'm very happy to be here at LSE again. I enjoyed 10 years of very fruitful um, intellectual life when I was here between 1997 and 2007 and um, spent some of that time thinking about some of the issues I've been writing about subsequently. And tonight I'm really talking about the thoughts expressed in this new book of mine, The Soul of the Marionette. And you might wonder why it's called that and what I'm referring to. I'll tell you that in a moment. But perhaps it would be simplest if I posed the question which the book poses and doesn't really pretend to answer but tries to think about in perhaps a, a way which is not altogether familiar, which is how can we be free um, in the human world as it actually exists? That's the central... Um, uh, I think I'll put my phone off, by the way. Uh, perhaps NSA are taking an interest, I don't know, but uh, you never know, do you? Um, having said that, by the way, in... Uh, 2002, I published a book in which I suggested that um, the price of individualism would be the abolition of privacy. And, and that was in my book, Al-Qaeda and What It Means to be Modern. I had no idea what would develop in subsequent years, but it seemed to me clear at the time that um, new technologies were developing, which, like technologies in the past, would be used both to promote freedom and to limit it. And one of the themes of this book, uh, as of my previous books, is that technology and science, and indeed human knowledge in general, always has this ambiguous character. That the advance of knowledge is real, the accumulation and the acceleration of the growth of knowledge is real. I'm not a radical skeptic or a postmodernist or a cognitive relativist. That's to say, I think human knowledge really is Advancing. That's why there are, how there can be so many human beings on the planet. It's why uh, we have the, um, how we can have the type of life that we do. But, and this is in a sense one of the core thoughts in this book, where I dissent from a strong 
philosophical and religious tradition, philosophically going back maybe all the way to the founder of European philosophy, Socrates, is that I hold that the advance of knowledge is not in itself liberating. The advance of knowledge gives those who have the knowledge more power, very often, gives them more ability to control things in the world, including other human beings, and doesn't ever by itself um, uh, um, uh, enable, uh, produce freedom or emancipation or any of these other ethical goals and ideals. But I started, before I was interrupted by my phone, by talking about um, the question, how can we be free in the kind of world that actually exists? And here I should say something about where the view of the world that I sort of take for granted in here, I don't really defend it or justify it. And in general, by the way, I'm not trying to convince or persuade anybody here tonight of to adopt my views. I'm not trying to uh, uh, um, evangelize. I'm not a, an evangelist for a particular worldview. I'm not trying to um, sell you any worldview. I'm simply suggesting a view of the world which I hold to be truer than that which is generally accepted today, and I suspect by many of you here will be accepted or taken for granted. I'm proposing that other view as a way which might be useful to some of you in thinking about um, how to be free in the world that, that actually exists. And where does the view that I take for granted or that I present in this view differ from the view that many of you probably hold? Well, I think many of you probably do think there is a link between the growth of human knowledge and the growth of human freedom, between the growth of human knowledge and, let's say, the advance of civilization. That's to say, you think that the growth of knowledge would enable various uh, evils to be restricted or diminished or reduced. It'll enable people to be, uh, act more uh, responsibly and freely in the world. And you'll have a view, which I think is very common nowadays, if not almost universal, according to which human history as a, as a whole has a kind of, um, exhibits a kind of incremental or accretive advance. That's to say, looking back at human history nowadays, it's very common for people to say, well, there have been long periods of regression, there have been terrible crimes that have been committed, there have been huge acts of uh, atrocity and... Uh, and long periods of subordination and enslavement of various groups, women, gay people, various colonial forms of domination and others. But over time, they'll say, over time, looking at the whole history of the species, what you'll see is a gradual, faltering, sometimes fitful uh, 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 advance in which various ethical and political goals are achieved incrementally over time, sometimes by revolution, sometimes by reform. Then at subsequent times, they're built upon and further goals are achieved. That's the sort. In other words, the idea is that ethical advance, advances in civilization, in ethics and in politics, are, as I say, accretive. Something's achieved, maybe part of that is lost, but most of it's not lost. The species inches along and gets gradually improved. The circumstances in which people live become freer, more acceptable, still full of injustices perhaps, but uh, better uh, over time. Um, so ethics and politics, in other words, exhibit this feature, this, this, this internal 
momentum of being like the growth of knowledge. And the growth of knowledge, human knowledge, I think, is cumulative, is accretive. It's not the, it's, the knowledge which is gained isn't regularly and catastrophically lost. If 95% of the scientists in the world today died of flu tomorrow, uh, that would be a great setback for science. But my belief is that since most of the knowledge is um, stored and embodied in computer disks and libraries and uh, various other forms, science would recover. And over time, I believe, the growth of knowledge would resume and would accelerate and would have the almost exponential character that it has today. That's what would happen if um, there was a disaster happened to science. Ethics and politics aren't like that, in my view. The human world isn't like, isn't incremental, isn't accretive in that way. Gains are made, gains are real. Um, the emancipation of women, the uh, greater, greater equality and freedom for gay people, uh, the uh, growth of various forms of uh, freedom and solidarity, all these things are real. But what is gained is normally lost, and very often not lost in the way people imagine. In other words, if you think of this melioristic, gradualistic view of human history, you'll think, well, we move along for four inches, then there's a setback and we lose two inches. That's what happens, but then we carry on again. That's not characteristically what happens in human history. What very often happens is a blow-up of an entire civilization. Civilization succumbs to war or barbarism of some kind. And this can happen at almost any time because human civilization, however understood, and you can ask me what I mean by it if you like in the questions, is, is inherently fragile. Now, how do I make this? Because this is a sort of unusual view. People will say, well, we know that ethical advance isn't inevitable, we know that it takes time, we know that it can, be, uh, it can be reversed from time to time. But the idea that it's not cumulative, except maybe over two or three generations, then something happens, a terrible war, an upheaval, a disaster of some kind, swept away. That's an unusual position nowadays to hold, although pretty well everyone, all the historians, all the philosophers, all the major religions held that view till the middle of the 18th century, I would say, if you read the Romans, the Greeks, um, even the early moderns like Machiavelli and others, they all took it for granted. Um, but it's hard to, to tolerate nowadays or to, to even to understand. How do I make it real to you? Well, I'll make it real to you by mentioning an episode that I think every single person in this room will be old enough to have lived through, namely the rehabilitation of torture. By that I mean the um, policy which initially emerged from within the George W.H. Bush administration to um, treat various forms of enhanced interrogation, as they were called, as legitimate methods or procedures or techniques in uh, warfare and in um, interrogation, in, in, in questioning suspects, back in, uh, uh, in, uh, in 2003 and onwards uh, in the context of the Iraq war. Now, until that actually happened until Abu Ghraib and all those things came out, any suggestion that there could be a relaxation of the deeply rooted laws and procedures and conventions, national and international governing torture, of that kind, especially by the world's leading liberal democracy, was regarded as not just unlikely, but wildly, even cynically, misanthropically unrealistic. 
And I know that because in February of 2003, that's to say before, a month before the invasion of Iraq, I published a spoof article in the New Statesman in which I argued that uh, in the spirit of Jonathan Swift, it was called a torture, a modest proposal, that if we were going to fight these wars all over the world for human rights, we needed to modernize our thinking about torture. And in particular, we needed to introduce a right to be tortured. We had to introduce proper techniques for torture. And by the way, when I suggested that, I was only relying on what some proponents of torture had argued in the United States. One of them recommended using sterilized hot needles, you know, better than things that cause uh, infections and so on. So progress in the art of torture. Um, I'd also argued that they should be, also be justified, held within the pattern of law by torture warrants. Now, when I wrote, when I published this, it was greeted with terrible uh, fury and by many people because many people didn't see the reference to Jonathan Swift. If those of you who know Jonathan Swift's writers, writings will know that he published a thing, a modest proposal on the condition of the poor in Ireland, in which he said there was nothing really that couldn't be solved if they simply ate their children. That was you know, not, wholly, not intended as a serious proposition, and neither was my argument about torture. But even though I was photographed, photoshopped in the article wearing Jonathan Swift's wig, which normally I don't do as a habitual thing. Um, not many people actually got the joke. Lots of people resigned their subscriptions to the magazine. To this day, I still get people coming up to me and say, that was terrible, that was absolutely monstrous. But the point was, this was February 2003, that on the basis of what could be publicly known, and I knew nothing that was not publicly known, I only knew what was there to be known, I was certain that torture would be used on a large scale. Why was I certain of that? First of all, it was essentially a neo-colonial war, and in uh, um, Algeria, in um, Balea, under the British, Algeria under the French, in Vietnam with the Americans, and in many other neo-colonial wars, including Northern Ireland later on, torture had been used. And in some cases, as in Algeria and Vietnam, on a colossal scale, so I, it was obvious that it would be used. But secondly... I also knew, because there were publicly public articles in well-known magazines by American writers who were close to the Bush administration advocating the use of torture, advocating the legitimation of torture in the war against terror. So it didn't take joining that many dots to see what would happen. I was certain that torture would be used on a large scale, and it was. But the key point is not that this happened, it's that that possibility, until it happened, was regarded as wholly impossible, almost. completely beyond the realm of, of realistic imagination or conjecture. Just as now, to give you a couple of other examples, I'm not confidently predicting these, the idea that there could be full-scale war on the European continent couldn't happen, couldn't possibly happen. The idea that Marine Le Pen could get close to the LEC Palace or even get into it, couldn't possibly happen. The idea that in Greece, uh, if Syriza is discredited by being unable to deliver the reforms that it's promised because it's strangulated by policy emanating from Brussels, the idea that the country could disintegrate into a position in which, from being the second party, the Nazi party, which Varoufakis has rightly said is not neo-Nazi, it's Nazi, Nazi, the Golden Dawn Party, and some party of the radical left fight it out in something close to a civil war couldn't possibly happen. I think all these things can happen. And things like that regularly do happen. In other words, there's no 
uh, long-term accretion or incremental advance of the sort that most people believe that there is. Now, there have been enormously long periods of regression. Here's one. One of the good things about our, some societies in the world today is gay people are treated more equally and with more respect than they used to be, but that wasn't true for about 2,000 years. I tend to defend uh, religion against some of the more evangelical forms of atheism, but certainly the conquest of Europe by Christianity did have some rather severe evils attached to it, and one was homophobia. You had up nearly 2,000 years of regression from the more uh, free and relaxed attitudes of the pre-Christian Greek and Roman world. So that was a 2,000-year regression, rather a long one. Now, how does this all fit in with the marionette? And who's the marionette? Well, the marionette refers to um, a poem, uh, a story by the uh, German poet and um, writer, uh, um, Kleist. And uh, how many of you, by the way, so I know how much to say about it, know about the story? Or how many of you know about the, what the story is? Not, not, maybe not very many of you. So I'll, uh, I'll fill it in. How many do? A few, yeah. But um, the, the story is by Heinrich von Kleist, early 19th century uh, German writer. And it simply concerns, it's an invented story, obviously, in, in, a conversation between two people who've witnessed a marionette display, a puppet performance, in a town square in Germany in the early 19th century. And marionette was, and uh, Kleist was extremely fond of um, paradoxical ideas and thoughts, and he has one of the interlocutors of the, in this dialogue, it's mostly a dialogue, the story, saying, isn't it wonderful that the marionette is more spontaneous than human beings are? Isn't it wonderful how freely how gracefully uh, 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 the marionette moves compared with the stuttering, fumbling movements of human beings who are always falling down and dithering. And he said, the marionette, when you look at the marionette, seems immune to the laws of gravity. Floats about on the stage, does various things, never seems in doubt, never seems in anxiety, never seems to be possessed by uncertainty the way humans are. Is gravity resistant? The marionette has a kind of freedom, the interlocutor says, that humans can't have unless they become either marionettes or gods. Very interesting idea. Now, I found that sort of tremendously uh, thought-provoking, and I wondered what it meant, and it struck me. It it was taken up by lots of subsequent writers, uh, Bruno Schultz, Polish-Jewish writer, many others, uh, Rilke, uh, the German poet, had a lot of reverberations in uh, European art and literature and poetry. And I wondered, in particular, what gravity was. If, if, the, if, if, if the marionette, the puppets, are immune to gravity, if they can float above gravity, what is gravity? And I think gravity is the burden of choice. The reason humans stutter and fall down and stumble and don't know what to do is that they feel as if they're confronted by choices in their lives and they don't know which choices to make. The marionette has all the choices made for it. It doesn't even experience choice, it simply does things. In other words, it has not freedom of choice, it has freedom from choice. Freedom from choice. Um, It doesn't need to choose, and in that fact is its its freedom. And towards the end of the dialogue, um, there's a discussion here of 
the biblical, the Genesis myth, the Old Testament myth, of the um, uh, Genesis myth in which uh, uh, one of the uh, interlocutors says, so what this means then is that um, we can only achieve real freedom by becoming completely conscious and having complete knowledge of ourselves. And with that complete knowledge and that complete consciousness, then we can be free, but not free to make choices. We won't have to make choices. We'll, have to, we'll be in a situation where choice is no longer needed or even perhaps possible. And they concur on that view. In other words, they actually interpret the Genesis myth in a, in a kind of rather interesting way, which was widely used in the ancient world. They interpret the Genesis myth in which the serpent in the myth who offers freedom is in fact the liberator. It's the serpent off, offers knowledge. And it's knowledge that liberates human beings. And this human beings from um, their natural slavery, it's knowledge which enables human beings to conquer their natural limitation. This view was at the heart of an ancient religion which was enormously powerful in the ancient world and I think in different forms goes on even now, namely Gnosticism. The Gnostics had two beliefs which are focused on, to some extent, in this, in this story of Christ. One is that humans are sparks of mind or spirit trapped in the flesh, trapped in their bodies. What humans really are are minds, intelligences, spirits. And that uh, the way out of this trap, they're trapped in their own bodies, they're trapped in their flesh, but they're also trapped in a dark material cosmos. They're subject to all kinds of laws which make them grow old, which force them to work, which bring them to death. The way out of this is to acquire a special kind of knowledge which for the Gnostics, and there were Gnostics in many different religions, Buddhist Gnostics, Christian Gnostics, Jewish Gnostics, um, Islamic Gnostics, all kinds of it spread very widely. The way out from this slavery was to acquire a special kind of knowledge, and if you acquired this knowledge, you'd no longer be enslaved by the material world. Now, why that's significant in later times, because there aren't that many practicing Gnostics around. There are a few, by the way. There are some. Um, why it's significant is I think that in a secular form, in a way which has been detached from its original mystical and metaphysical uh, framework or background, it's a very common idea nowadays, especially among radical scientific thinkers. There are many radical scientific thinkers. They're not religious. They don't believe they spurn any kind of mysticism. Uh, um, who argue that by using the knowledge and the technology we have available to us today, we humans can emancipate ourselves from all kinds of evils which in the past we had to submit to, including possibly even death. But certainly, we can, we can live much longer than we do. We can be much richer than we are. Uh, we can get rid of poverty. We can, we can use science and technology. We can use knowledge, not the mystical knowledge that the Gnostics sought, but scientific knowledge to uh, radically improve our position in the world and even to design a superior form of humanity. I don't know if many of you have heard of the human enhancement movement or transhumanism. Say, well, we humans as we are, we're a pretty sort of ropey lot. Uh, we should, we can, but we can use science now to get rid of inheritable diseases. That would be an improvement that pretty well all of us would think was worth doing. But we could also... Uh, as we get to know more and more about DNA, as bioengineering, genetic engineering becomes more and more feasible, we can actually 
design our children and our children's children to uh, be cleverer, more quick thinking, perhaps more compassionate, less prone to attack other people. We can design them to be better than we are or ever could be. And quite apart from that, we can also, and this of course is actually happening already, we can invent new machines which are not only quicker than we are in calculating things, but can actually recognize patterns better than we can. Uh, about 60% of the stock, at least 60% in America, maybe 60% of the stock market trading that goes on is now algorithmic. Most of the things you're interrupted by on, online are algorithmically sent to you on the basis of your previous searches. I continually get things for pet food, whatever I... I can be looking up um, early 19th century Gnosticism and a thing will come up because I, I occasionally buy pet food online. Excellent pet food for cats, particularly older cats, but there we are. Um, how did that happen? There's no one sitting, sitting somewhere looking at what I'm doing. What happened? There are complex and ever more powerful algorithms which can identify the shopping habits and the habits of mind and the interests and the, even perhaps the beliefs and the values of, of us as we're online more intelligently and not just more quickly but more subtly than any human being could. And it's a fair bet, I think it's almost certainty, that over the next 10, 20 years, many tasks which are now performed by professionals and require educated human judgment, tasks, tasks of medical diagnosis, for example, will be performed by machines. And that raises all kinds of social and other issues and also if you like, issues of philosophy or metaphysics, if there are these machines which are more intelligent than humans are, are they also more conscious? Or could they be more intelligent without being conscious at all? Might it be, actually, that the advantage of consciousness is dwindling? That humans, as has been suggested by one or two people, including myself in this book, might, by inventing these immensely powerful devices, end up somewhat like the Neanderthals, left behind by these enormously powerful um, machines. And by the way, you might think this is all terribly far-fetched. None of it's going to happen. Well, one of the great advocates of this view, uh, I differ with him on many points, but he's certainly a very brilliant thinker, and he's been right on one or two things. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, American writer, is now director of engineering at Google. So he's got plenty of resources to devote his to, to, to use at his disposal to develop these ideas. And he's developing machines which he thinks will... Um, he thinks they'll be able... He says they'll be... He thinks they'll be able to make better jokes than humans. I'm doubtful about that, but anyway. He says they'll be able to flirt irresistibly. Well, I don't know, but certainly they'll be able to do lots of things better than we can, including most of the... Many of the things, at least, that, as it were, the middle-class professions have done in the past. Investing... Um, medicine, um, maybe even issues connected with the analysis of character and psychology. Uh, um, I see no reason why this, why this um, um, shouldn't, why this uh, uh, shouldn't happen. So, the role of the marionette is that um, the marionette has a kind of perfection which we lack. And uh, it has a kind of consciousness, if it is conscious at all, which doesn't involve the necessity 
uh, for um, choice. And I then started, when I was thinking about writing this book, to look back in European history, and I found the myth of the golem in medieval and early modern times. I found, of course, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And more recently, I found a great deal of discussion and um, uh, speculation about the way in which knowledge could be used to design a post-human or a superior human species. And while recognizing, as I've just done, that these machines, that these robots, these forms of artificial intelligence that are now being developed may turn out to be able to do all kinds of things that we can't do as effectively or can't do at all, and certainly not as quickly, but even to do things which require lots of judgment better than we can do, I am very skeptical, and this is one of the arguments from the book, and very resistant to the idea that humans can and ought to attempt to design higher versions of themselves, that they ought, that they can and should try to uh, enhance their children or themselves or their grandchildren or some artificially invented forms of life to produce beings better than themselves. Why am I skeptical of that? And what, why do I resist it? And how does it connect with my, the question with which I started, which is how can we be free in the world as it is, a world in which there is uh, progressive, accumulative, accelerating progress in science and technology and human knowledge, but no such accumulative advance in ethics and politics, but rather drift, punctuated by cycles in which civilizations rise, they achieve various things, they free slaves, they make various ethical advances, then they tend to succumb in disastrous wars or periods of tyranny and um, mass hysteria. How can we be free in, uh, in, in an environment like that? Well, not by trying to develop superior, not by trying to become Kleist's marionette or a version thereof, not by trying to develop higher versions of ourselves by human enhancement. Uh, uh, um, why not? Well, a few reasons. One reason is that um, uh, the trouble with de designing a higher version of humankind is that the design is always done and implemented by the flawed humans that already exist. They will use their purposes and their standards to determine what would be a higher, higher species. So if you're not just the Nazis in the 30s, they were terrible, of course, but lots of people, Julian Huxley for a while, um, lots of people in the 1930s um, and 20s and in the Edwardian period favoured versions of eugenics which would eliminate certain human characteristics. If you thought, as some people did in those days, that disabilities prevented what we call disabilities or have been called disabilities prevented people from living a, worth, a worthwhile life, then you should try to develop positive eugenics so that no one was disabled. If you thought, as many people still did then, that being gay was some kind of illness or unnatural, then you would try and eliminate that from... Uh, future humanity. If you were a race, if you held <coughs> theories of racial hierarchy, which lots and lots and lots of people did, not just Nazis, in the 19th and early 20th century, including uh, uh, um, a great many distinguished people who, otherwise distinguished people, who held to the idea that there was some kind of hierarchy of racial groups in the world, then you wouldn't be interested in propagating the so-called inferior groups. You'd be interested in bolstering the position of the ones that were, were superior. So one great, no, I wouldn't say risk or hazard, I would say a certainty 
when any group of human beings, whether it be a state or a corporation or a religion or a sect or maybe an organized, a cult or some organized crime group, adopts technologies to enhance human capacities, is they'll do so according to the values, narrow as they may be, bigoted, fanatical, or vile as they may be, that they already have. In other words, they'll apply the standards of what they consider enhancement. Stalin was interested in um, a project that actually got off the ground for a while, uh, didn't get anywhere, where he thought he, he hired a, a, a man who was supposed to be a geneticist but had in fact been a horse trainer under, in, under the czars. Uh, he hired him to uh, produce soldiers who slept less, ate less, and were less prone to compassion than even battle-hardened Soviet soldiers were. That was his job. And the way he was supposed to achieve it was to interbreed them with um, primates, mostly chimpanzees and other monkeys, that were brought from Africa. Uh, uh, It didn't work. Um, The the chap fell into disfavor. He was exiled to um, Central Asia. He perished, it is said, and I tend to believe this. I'm not a conspiracy. I don't think he was pushed. I think he was drunk, probably. He fell in front of a train, and that was the end of him. Didn't work. But the goal was, for him, human enhancement meant better soldiers. Now, if these, if these, if these uh, technologies spread about in the world, it won't be a situation in which humankind makes a collective decision to enhance itself. All these different groups, states, corporations, huge wealthy corporations, organized crime networks, terrorist networks, um, cults and God knows what, they will make these decisions according to the values and the goals and the ideas of what would be a better human being according to how they see them. So that's kind of one reason I'm very nervous about this. I mean, I could put it in a form which I know sort of annoys some people, but I, I think it's a fact. Humankind is not the kind of thing that can take collective decisions. We can have, we can have the UN, we can have... But remember, whenever the UN stands in the way of a, an important power, they either lie to it or ignore it. These decisions about human enhancement will be taken by lots. Now, it doesn't mean that I can stop them, it doesn't mean if we frown on them or disapprove of them, they'll stop. they won't stop. It'll, all be, it'll, it'll happen anyway. But I think we shouldn't have illusions about it. And there's a second, deeper, and subtler reason why I'm against this, and then I'll move on uh, uh, towards the end. The deeper reason is I don't think we understand ourselves well enough as the human beings we actually are to be able to design better versions of ourselves. In other words, if you talk to... Uh, people or we read people who've advocated this sort of thing, they, they think they can identify the good parts of human nature, enhance those and eliminate the bad parts. We can have more empathy but less cruelty. Well, in a way, you know, cruelty depends on empathy. If you couldn't imagine the pain of your victim, if you're a sadist, you probably wouldn't be cruel. Cats, again, are supposed to be cruel, but the evidence is they, they don't imagine when they're tossing mice about and so on. They don't imagine them suffering. They don't imagine anything. To them, it's just a kind of game of forward play. But human beings are different. Human beings are capable of imagining the uh, pain of others. And that's why um, they're sometimes, one of the reasons why they are sometimes uh, cruel uh, as they are. But supposing it's the case, contrary to 
many of the religions, contrary to Aristotle, all the way back, um, who thought that all the human virtues, the things that make people good in their characters, basically they, they all reinforce one another. They all, they all, I suppose, the, be, the, the best life is the one that had the best mix of virtues. Supposing that's not true. Supposing some human virtues depend upon human vices. Supposing the good aspects of human beings depend on aspects which aren't bad, which aren't good. Um, uh, supposing courage depends on type of recklessness, certain types of courage at least, that in other contexts leads to very bad results. I think this is quite often true. But my general point is, do we really, do we really know? If we really, if there really was a kind of a, a collective human assembly which decided on, if it could, I don't think it could, decide on what would be a better form of humanity and set about and achieved it, actually bred a new generation or several future generations which was corresponded with this model, we wouldn't know until it happened what we'd lost along the way. And that can also, by the way, that can also in a more simple way, but if we, if we really bred out, as some people advocate by positive eugenics, people who have certain types of disabilities, do we not lose something along the way? Will we know if we successfully did it? Will we know what we've lost or will we forget and then not know? Um, and that applies even more if you turn at the, the, the start of the 20th century in 1900s there were lots of writers including writers I otherwise admire like H.G. Wells wonderful writer in many ways but he writes in his non-fiction writing he says there are inefficient peoples in the world peoples that are just inefficient get rid of them um, quite a common view in, in Edwardian among, in Edwardian times even among people who were as he was mostly um, on the left so where's this all leading and where do, I, um, where do I conclude? Well, what it's leading to is that uh, the idea that human freedom is enhanced by, even necessarily enhanced by, uh, growing knowledge is, I think, a kind of illusion. Now, there might be some among you who think, well, you've been talking about mystical knowledge and scientific knowledge, but what about knowledge in the social sciences? After all, this is the LSE. Doesn't knowledge of this in the social sciences, especially in those that are more critical of existing social forms. Doesn't that enhance freedom? Well, a kind of story I tell in here, it's a true story, um, just raises a question about it. I don't know how many of you heard of Guy Debord, the French situationist theorist, a um, very interesting writer, I think, in many ways. Um, uh, He committed suicide, I think not because he was persecuted, mainly because he was despondent and not very well and suffering from melancholy at the time. Um, But one of the sort of interesting features uh, which he seems to have, of his life that he he was disappointed in is the way his thought was either ignored or neutralized. And I came across an interesting feature, an interesting um, uh, fact about his thinking which illustrates this. De Boer, for most of his life, like many people on the radical left and others, believed that if only the, the spectacle, the, 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 delusory, the delusory image of society that it generates of itself was penetrated, destroyed, shaken, if only people could, so to speak, see through it, they would join a campaign, some kind of project of social, or political, social and political emancipation. He thought that. He thought that if the, if the spectacle could be seen through, it would crash. Well, an interesting... Before he died, actually, this, this happened. An uh, interesting feature developed when I read an interview, and uh, the footnote is in the book if you want to check it. 
uh, I read an interview with the head, the CEO of Berlusconi's media empire. And Berlusconi, and the head, I've forgotten his name now, but it's in the book. He said, well, you know, how did you achieve this incredible domination of, of the Italian media and of Italian politics? He said, we got it all from De Boer. He was really, our, you know, we really understood this stuff about the spectacle. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic. Now, what does this mean? I mean, was he telling a joke or was it true? I suspect it was true. They learned the techniques, but without adopting the goals or the ends. In other words, even now, a different example for you. Edward Bernays, any, any of you heard of him? He, he uh, relative of Freud's, a great man in many ways, he wrote a book, I think came out in 1930, called Propaganda. The first, one of the first um, really rigorous analyses of propaganda, how to do it, but how it works on the human subconscious, mass meetings, the whole thing. He had to flee the Nazis, and he was horrified when he heard that the book was being used by Goebbels. And it was being used because it's knowledge, it's science, it's, it's genuine, a genuine account. So all knowledge, including social scientific knowledge, including knowledge embodied in what are supposed to be emancipatory theories, have this, has this characteristic that it can be used for a variety of purposes, including purposes of repression and um, enslavement. So what can freedom then mean for us if we don't take this view? Now, I'm always criticised for not really offering concrete alternatives, and I'm not going to offer one tonight either. Um, but I tend to take the view that we should put aside this view about knowledge is important, and as I say, when we make practical decisions, political decisions, personal decisions, all kinds of decisions, we need to do our best to bear in mind what can be known. Um, as I say, I'm not a radical relativist. I don't hold that nothing can be known. We should try and make out the best judgment that we can of probabilities and risks and uncertainties. And uncertainties are greater than risks in many cases. Those of you who are economists will know that Proper risks can be quantified in some way, uncertainties can't. By the way, the trick is to know which is which. Lots of things that look like, probably look like risks turn out to be uncertainties, especially if you have as what was ironically called long-term capital management. The first great hedge fund to go under, they had a long list, but it went back, I think, seven or eight years. Didn't mention a big country like Russia defaulting on its debt. So when it did, they were, they were sunk. Um, uh, um, you do your best, but then you act, I think, then we, then we, then we act in uncertainty and in ignorance. We act in unknowing. We act with what the poet Keats called negative capability. Negative capability, if you ever read his wonderful essays, he says negative capability means in areas where there can't be knowledge, where there can't be fact, not being possessed by an irritable itch after certainty or fact, just acting, and that might might involve personal life, it might involve a political stance of some kind, even if it might involve, even if you can't know what the outcome will be, you simply have to do the best, it seems, with the, uh, um, with the uh, um, uh, uh, values and uh, um, goals um, uh, that you have. And so I end by saying that actually the, um, the dream of weightless freedom the dream of gravity-resistant freedom, the dream of freedom as involving not having to take choices, even if choices are ultimately illusory in terms of some well-developed neurological materialism. That dream of living without 
the necessity of making choices, even if they're illusory choices, I think is a, a dangerous one and a rather sterile one. Rather than finding freedom in a dream of weightlessness, a dream of becoming, guiding our lives by knowledge, we should find it by falling to earth, find freedom in falling, by accepting that in all the most humanly important areas of our life, individually as well as collectively, we actually don't know very much. Um, And we can't know very much, and we never will. And the idea that by knowing more and more, having greater and greater knowledge, having greater and greater knowledge in neurology and psychology and sociology as well as in biology and physics, we'll be able to enhance human civilization. That's one of the sort of key illusions we should get rid of. Not, not that we should try and stop uh, scientific progress or use it um, as beneficially as we can, but that the future will in this respect be like the past. Any advances in human knowledge that are made and in technology will be used by human beings as we actually find them, as they actually are. In other words, they'll go into the mix of, um, of human conflict. Thank you very much. very much, Professor Gray, for such a stimulating talk. Um, I'd like to open the floor for some questions. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll take two questions at once, and then you'll respond to them. Um, two or three, yeah. Maybe. Two or three. Um, if you could wait for the roving mic before you start so we can speaking. Hear. So we can hear, yeah. So that we can, he- so that we can hear properly and so that it will come out for the podcast. And finally, if you could try and make your question as kind of concise as possible, because there are so many of you. Okay. Uh, Yes, thank you for your talk, Professor Gray. Um, You said early on in the talk that we are in for an enormously long period of regression. Now, I think it's reasonable to suggest that the human race might not want to go through an enormously long period of regression uh, because that might result in the end of the human race, uh, and which I take to be a bad thing. Now, it seems from what you put forward that there, that there is no reason in what you say why the end of the human race would be a bad thing. Uh, and I see you nodding at that. No, I'm just nodding that I understand you. Okay. <laughs> okay. At least I okay. think I understand you. Maybe I don't. Okay. Now, um, the, my question is um, about this conundrum that you set us, that um, goals, that the, 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 the goals that we have as human beings are not things that we can successfully fight for in society, but are rather things that we have as sort of whimsical and rather silly uh, attachments that we have, um, and that um, it's actually you know, totally impractical and even unwise to try to persuade people of our ideas. And I'd like to suggest to you that reality is not like that, 
that, re that the reality is that the good human beings and the good ideas do ultimately win out. And they win out. And when I say ultimately, they win out because they serve the purpose of uh, advancing the human race. Uh, and I, 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 I'm, I'm wondering, so the, my question is, I'm wondering from what you're offering the public, what you're offering us, how, how are we to try to advance that project of having the good goals adopted by the human race? We've got one more and then we'll go on. Yeah. Or two more. Hopefully a very short question, possibly a long answer. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I was a little surprised in your discussion of human freedom. You didn't really mention happiness, um, which I think a lot of people would place quite high as, as a sort of goal of human freedom. Can you say something about that? Mm. And one more. Uh, don't you think that it's very arrogant of us as humans to always assume that the main preoccupation and purpose of intelligent machines is to destroy us and replace us? Can, why can't we imagine an alternative future for them? I'll take the last one first. Um, I'm not assuming that they have any particular purposes initially, apart from these, the ones that we've programmed. Yeah, sorry. I'm not assuming that intelligent machines have any purposes initially, apart from those we programmed into them. Um, for example, it's been pointed out by a number of writers on this subject that uh, we might program into the machines uh, that they don't care about their own perpetuation. In other words, they're unlike humans. We do care, care for the most part about our perpetuation, but machines might not care. So if you try to switch them off, they might not try and prevent you. All I'm assuming, and I think this is realistic, is that if machines get more and more intelligent, whether or not they get conscious or not, I don't see why not, myself. I don't, I don't see why human, my machines shouldn't develop intelligence the way humans did, by chance, by evolutionary chance. But if that happens, then they will slip the loose of human control, and even of control by themselves and each other. So they'll become like humans have been, though maybe faster and quicker and have qualities that humans haven't got. And in those cases, they might be hostile to us or they might simply be, I think much more likely, not hostile at all, but completely indifferent, but do things which we used to do um, better than we ourselves were able to do them. In the near future of the next 20 years, say, none of these things I think are particularly likely, but what is likely, especially for the younger people who are here tonight, is that many of the vocations or jobs or professions that they consider going into will be much more widely performed by artificial intelligence than they are now. I mean, I'm old enough, it sounds absolutely positively medieval, but I go back to pre-photocopying days <laughs> when you went to the library, pulled a book down and wrote it down. I don't, by the way, want to go back to that golden age. Uh, in that respect, um, there's been genuine progress. Um, but um, uh, 20, 30 years hence, a vast range of tasks that some of you may now be preparing to do as humans may not be done by humans. They'll be serving us. They won't be destroying us or attacking us or perhaps even ostentatiously ignoring us. 
but they'll be supplanting and eroding these functions. Now, if you're a mainstream economist, I, I know exactly what they would say. They would say, every time this has been discussed in the past, it's always been said by Luddites and opponents of technical progress that it would lead to mass unemployment, and it never has. That's what people would say. They would always say, new jobs, new, uh, new are creative. Well, it could happen, but, but this time could be different. And one of the reasons could be different. The technologies are a quantum leap beyond anything that's been done before. Um, so I'm not convinced it'll be um, the same this time. Second one, happiness. It's kind of interesting. Um, people connect happiness and freedom closely together, I suppose, as, as you rightly say. But I wanted to leave it open. I wanted to leave it open to people to uh, uh, what they used, whatever freedom could be achieved for. Some might use it to make themselves happy or others happy or both themselves and others happy, yet others might have other goals and um, uh, um, um, values independent of, of happiness. I mean, it might sound odd, but you know there are and always have been and are now in the world many people who pursue things like knowledge for its own sake or um, various types of political and other uh, advancement uh, of, of causes, even if they believe or even know that it will not lead to happiness for them because they may perish in the struggle. Now, I wanted to leave that option open. I didn't want to say, well, because it won't make you happy, you shouldn't do it or anything of that kind. On whether I... Um, Argued. I, ne- I didn't, by the way, I think the rest of the audience will confirm that. I did not say, perhaps there were people who heard that because they wanted to hear me saying it, that um, we were in for a long period of regression. What I said was, when I used that phrase was, I was actually referring to the specific example, that between about uh, AD 100 and now there were almost 2,000 years of moral regression in the treatment of gay people. That's what I said. And that was a massive regression, and it went on for a hell of a long time. And it still is going on in many parts of the world, even in areas of the world that were more uh, respectful uh, and and more um, uh, in giving equality and freedom to gay people. There is a reversal going on. So I never said that, so I'm not really interested in, in, in answering it. As to whether the extinction of the human species would be a bad thing, um, um, certainly it would. In, there would be a lot of enormous losses. But the key element in here is, the key error, I think, is to imagine that the human species decides things or wants things. Um, uh, there's no collective entity of that sort. I mean, the idea of, of the human species as a kind of moral unit which decides and wants things and travels throughout history, has a great march throughout history, uh, achieves things, suffers great tragedies, goes on, is an idea that comes not from science or rationalism, but religion comes from theistic ideas of providence in Judaism and Christianity, for example. Um, and I think if you um, give up those ideas of religion, if you renounce them, or if you just don't have them, it's actually very difficult. What you're left with is not the human species. You're left with humans as they actually are in their multifarious variety with many different values, goals, many different... Some of them I would myself regard as uh, abhorrent and vile, and I would therefore try to resist or uh, um, uh, defeat them. But I would never have the idea, I would never have the illusion that at some point point in the future, um, humankind would be converted to a single 
view of the good, e.g. mine, because it's simply not going to happen. Never happened before, never happened in the future, because diversity of moralities is as natural for humans as the plurality of languages. Um, some of the languages, some of those, those moralities might be quite abominable and have been quite abominable and are quite abominable, in my view, but then you simply have to take a stand. You have to, you have to descend into, the, into, into, the, into the, the fallen world of choice and, if you like, even evolution and take a stand, decide what you want, want to stand for. Stand for. Um, but humanity isn't... There's going to be a kind of nod from humanity in the future. Well, I'm glad you did that because I wouldn't be here by now if you weren't. The future will be like the past. Humans would be a very multifarious, quarrelsome, and uh, conflict-ridden lot. Um, there are some... Can we have... No, no woman has yet spoken here. There's one over there. I can see... Um, I just got a very uh, quick and narrow question. Okay. When you were talking about the eugenics, yes. um, the sort of recent thing that's been in the news about the three-parent baby, yes. Yes. Um, do you think that's a worrying, slippery slope, or do you think it's... You don't? Well, I mean, I, shall I just immediately respond? I don't, I don't, I'm not very exercised about it. It seems no. to me to... Um, because it's the beginning of choice. I mean, it's rather... Mm. Or, I'm sure lots of people are glad that they don't have the choice of what their, what their baby's going to look like. Well, choice can be bad in these contexts because we know that there are some parents who would choose not to have girls, but only boys. We, uh, if we went a bit further and people had a choice, as to, you know, they say, well, I want, I want my children to be great piano players. I don't want clumsy sort of noisy types. I want very obedient potential piano geniuses. And if some scientist came along and said, I can do that, it'll cost you 50000 but I can do it. Um, that's choice. Is it, is it good? That's why I'm worried about enhancement. But as regards the three-parent child, I'm not, I, I don't think... I mean, we're the first country, I think, to have allowed it. It sounds like a good thing in this case, you know, to have yes. the choice, but it's just like yes. it's the first Yes, I, that's step. my view. I mean, there isn't a single blanket view which says you've got to do things the way they've always been done in the past. In the past, we've only had two parents, now we've got three. What's wrong with that? We've got gay marriage now. What, what's wrong with that? Well, it's crazy. What? It's not crazy. You know, some women's officers have three parents, but they don't want just to wait five days to go to one country and go, no, no monkeys used. It's the biological. No, I don't see it as a problem, and neither, did, neither has the government and neither has the House of, House of Commons. Okay. Should we take another question? I think the gentleman in the row behind. Right. Um, Can we at least hear your question? Yes. So, um, <clears throat> within the context, if, 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 if freedom and emancipation are going to be ever elusive, it's a very, very... Through knowledge. Emancipation yeah. through knowledge. Yes. I mean, what, 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 what options does this leave for, um, for individuals that want to be a force of, of good and do good in society? We take one more, shall yeah. we? Lady at the back. Thank you. Was there another lady? <laughs> um, hi. Um, I just... Um, with regards to eugenics, um, I just noted down to what extent are people today actually designing better versions of human beings? Mm. 
I was just thinking in a practical sense, you know, we're talking about, about it theoretically, but I just wondered to what extent is that actually happening? And to what extent, therefore, do we need to be worried about it? Mm. Well, I'll take the last one first again. Um, I think there are some techniques available now which can prevent the birth of children which, who have identifiable and inheritable traits or which can identify those traits in advance and maybe you can tell the parents that there's a likelihood potential parents of these traits being transmitted. So there can be, uh, there are some uh, techniques that are practical now and the assumption is, which I think is realistic, that as a science and technology and medicine develop, that will become more and more feasible. After all, it's happened in many other contexts that there has been this kind of advance. So the question then is where do you, where do you decide to either grant choice or intervene and, and where not? And it's the question of the earlier uh, uh, speaker. And, and, and questioner. There may be a case where one can only see good things, as it were, coming from one particular type of extension of choice. But if you have that choice extended across a wider range where people can choose, there's been a discussion, for example, in this recently, in the last few weeks, about gender-specific abortion, hasn't there, in this, in this country? And the risk of that is, is clear that it can reinforce um, various um, uh, forms of uh, sexist prejudice. Those who support freedom over this say, well, there is a, a basic freedom to control one's reproductive system that, we, that should be exercised anyway. I mean, there are many arguments. Speak yeah, sorry. Uh, those, who support, with those who support the freedom to have gender-specific abortions don't support it because they want gender-specific abortions. They support it because they want people to have unrestricted freedom to control their reproductive uh, life. And if some of them make this wrong choice... If it is, you know, I think it is a wrong choice, but if they make this wrong choice, then, we should, then they should be discussed and persuaded and, uh, but not prevented. That's what some people, some people say. So I do think it is, although I'm not an expert on the air, I do think it, there are various practical issues right now and that as science and technology and medicine develop, they'll get more serious. What options do we have? Well, we have all the options we have. What options do we have to change the world and make the world? We have all the options we have. In fact... What we don't have are um, uh, what we don't have is a kind of, um, and I think it's good that we don't have this, is uh, the power to select a range of op- options which will deliver the whole of humanity into some much better condition that we lay down in advance, um, whoever we are. In other words, if we want to resist injustice. We're free to do. Let me perhaps give you an example. I mean, because it's really kind of barren to talk about this in that example. Now, some of you may be from Greece and might have a different view than I have of this because I've, I haven't been there and studied it in detail. But I have a great deal of sympathy for the Syriza position in um, rejecting uh, EU and, in fact, largely German-imposed austerity. I mean, among the results of that austerity have been cutting back on um, uh, uh, malaria prevention campaigns because they cost money. There's been an increase in the rate of transmission of HIV because various types of medicine and and practical uh, uh, preventive have been cut back. Um, The result of the austerity measures has been what I would think of as humanly intolerable conditions. So if I were there, um, I'm not sure what I would do. I mean, some people have left the country and gone to make lives elsewhere. I wouldn't condemn them for that. Um, but I would certainly um, be in broad sympathy with the Syriza rejection of these 
of this humanly intolerable debt regime, this austerity regime which has been imposed upon them. And I say that in full knowledge. I did study at one point the history of it, that the figures were fudged when Greece went into <coughs> Greece, went into the EU. There were all kinds of complications and hidden, um, hidden agendas going on. But it's also, by the way, too, that the bailout was mainly a bailout of European banks and not of Greek society or the Greek population. That's also true. Um, however, I'm, what I fear now, and this may illustrate what I fear now, is that Syriza will be slowly or quickly strangulated by being forced to accept the same austerity um, or a very similar uh, austerity program that its predecessors have. And that as a result, over time, not immediately because there's a lot of support for Syriza, I'm told now, uh, they're given a kind of uh, leeway in which to... Um, in which to develop their program. But over six months, three months, six months, a year or so, if at the end of that period this, this, this relentless process of being ground down continues, I think, the, if not before, because there is there's a coalition of various different groups, it will collapse. What will it be replaced by? Well, before austerity began, there was no significant Greek Nazi party. It's now the third party in the country. Um, what will happen to the body politic in which this humane and uh, coalition fragments and disintegrates, in which, um, in which the attempt to compel it, or even in a sense almost punish it, for promoting this anti-austerity program, is successful, the austerity program is imposed for a bit longer, go back to the hopelessness and despair of before, even worse because the little chink of light that emerged has been closed down, what will happen then? I think it looks pretty bad, but having said that, I go back to my earlier point. One must take a stand on the values that one holds uh, important regardless of such future speculations. In other words, what we don't really know what will happen. I don't think it doesn't look like being very good. In fact, I'm, it, it's, it's sort of interesting to me that the people who are imposing this policy in Germany and elsewhere, what is their end game regarding Greece? Is the end game that they'll be so completely broken that they'll accept this austerity regime forever? They won't, nor should they. Is that the goal? Is it the goal to drive them out of the EU? Is that the goal? 70 or 80% don't want to leave the EU, actually. But they may end up having to do so. They may end up having to bite the bullet, and that, that, that might be what, what, actually, what actually happens. But the options one has are the options one has any, anyway. One simply doesn't know the outcome. One can make some realistic assessments of judgment, but then you simply have to act. That's the human situation. And so I'm returning to that rather than to the idea that by some, some extra kind of knowledge, some special type of economics, neoliberal economics, or Marxism, or some extra kind of critical theory, or you could know what to do. There is no such theory. You simply have to struggle with the uncertainty and the unknown in which you find yourself and then decide, then do, even if uh, it's, a, it's some kind of, in terms of theories of the brain or of the mind, there is no such thing as choice or illusion. They're certainly real to us. And uh, simply decide what to do and struggle with the consequences that then unfold. Oh, sorry, there was one final one. I think I've done them all now. Is that the lot? Yes, that is the lot. Gentlemen and the lady behind. <coughs> yes, thanks again, Professor Gray, for your uh, very provocative and interesting talk.
Um, the, the science writer, Isaac Asimov, uh, said something uh, to the effect, the saddest aspect of life is that science gathers knowledge faster than, so than society gathers wisdom, which would probably sum up much of what you've been saying. Um, Post-Enlightenment critical German philosophy has answers and explanations for this. Um, you haven't so far gone into this aspect. For instance, it, it sees Cartesian reason and um, empiricism as uh, a dream of reason, producing monsters, to quote Goya. Um, uh, we are trapped... You, you know, we have to define things. So we're constantly trapped in these dualisms um, of uh, mind and body, of reason and experience. And for the last 30 years, we've suffered a sort of eclipse of reason and the elevation of sensation and body. Um, and we have these continual swings between the dominance yes, of one over the other. Is. So I'm wondering, um, um, uh, where you mention, you know, that uh, our problem arises from the material, how about it arising from the uh, intellectual and the mental? I think of uh, Bacon's Four Idols of the Mind and how German philosophy would rewrite these. Um, yeah, next one. Yeah. Hello. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I have a um, few questions. Do I understand you correctly that you equate freedom with action. Um, and the second one, could you give us, please, your definition of freedom? Thank you. I have one more, and then someone at the front's been waiting a long time. I think six statements should sum it up, really. Um, thank you for the richness of your talk, which was very discursive, so I found parts hard. Um, so I've got six statements, and I wonder if um, you want to object to any of them. And a question? Sorry? And a question? Yes, yes. And the question is, um, which ones do you object, in particular the last two? <laughs> the, the first one is you're clearly against um, uh, emancipation through knowledge, um, or what I might call Scientolatry. Uh, secondly, um, you have a slight downer on religion. This is what I'd say to somebody um, who asked me about the talk. Uh, thirdly, although you didn't mention happiness, it runs through all of your conversation, although the slight uh, uh, things like sort of advance of society, emancipation of this, that, and the other, but the slight sense of happiness is a sort of Stetford-type happiness. Uh, number four... Uh, you rather liked the idea, you sort of rather toyed with the idea of lack of choice as being a good thing, but you weren't quite sure uh, whether we could achieve it or should achieve it. Um, you were then, you, you touched, I think, once on the word consciousness, but didn't say any more, but I'd love to hear more. And finally, you said um, diversity of morality um, is natural um, and, didn't, and one has to make a stand, and that sounded about as postmodern as you said you weren't going to be. Well, I'll start with the last one. Postmodern. Was Montaigne postmodern? Was Pirro, who actually lived about 2,500 years ago, was he postmodern? Were, were, um, I mean, the idea that there is a plurality of moralities is a terribly old idea, um, an ancient idea. 
In fact, it actually predates the idea of universalism. Um, so, the idea that, now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that um, there aren't universal human values. There may be something, yeah, there may be some goods and bads that are um, generically human. No one benefits from being tortured, I believe. No one benefits from um, um, living in chronic poverty. No one benefits from being persecuted on account of their religion or sexuality. Um, The difficulty arises when, and this very often happens in real life, um, when you have to choose between different goods or accept evils such as terrible wars or revolutions with their collateral damage that they inflict on many people, including the revolutionaries, uh, in order to defend these universal values. So a morality, you could see a morality. This isn't my... I mean, I, I don't really think offering definitions of things is useful at all, but um, uh, if you could see a morality as a way, a particular way of resolving conflicts between values that are humanly universal. In other words, you could say the different ways of life that human beings have developed, and there are a great many over time, and there will be many in future, which we don't even imagine yet, uh, are ways in which there are different mixes, different combinations of goods and bads that are generically human. So that's kind of my view. And it's just not a postmodernist view, because the postmodern, a postmodernist view, I guess, is at least the, the postmodern thinker I used to know the best, and I actually talked with at some length once in London, was um, Rorty, and his view was that it made no sense at all to talk about human nature or to talk about universal human goods. There were simply different cultural constructions. That's not my view at all, and never has been. Um, I'm not sure I can go through all. Lack of choice, I never suggested that lack of choice was a good thing. I think lots of people would like to be rid of choice. I think lots of people do dream of not having to choose, both religious people who say they serve God, and also, um, if you look at 20th century totalitarianism and tyranny, you know, what tends to be forgotten now, it's almost forbidden to mention it, but there are many occasions in 20th century history where tyrannies were massively popular. They weren't popular among the people they were persecuting and killing, of course, but they enjoyed mass majority support. If you doubt that, read some of the accounts by uh, emigres and survivors of Stalinism and of Nazism. Read their accounts of their everyday life. They suffered, sometimes they, they benefited from acts of kindness from others. Not everyone in the societies turned on them, but an awful lot did turn on them. Uh, the regimes were popular, f- uh, at least while they, were, while they were winning. And that's kind of forbidden now to suggest that there can be but it's just a fact, it's just a fact. Religion, I always defend religion against the commonest types of atheism, even though I'm an atheist myself. Um, um, but religion is certainly, religions of various kinds, like any other human institution, like the market, like states, like laws, like families, like charities, like churches, they all have come with important evils. All of them, because they're, they're human. There is no type of institution which is free, no cult, no, which is free of this. And religions have it. Christianity, although I think it was in some respects uh, an advance, came with terrible evils in its train, but that is common. Scientism, yes, I do um, criticize scientism. I'll move on to the second question, which was does freedom mean action for me? Um, well, there can, be, there can be a kind of, in fact, part of the book is about a kind of 
inner freedom that human beings can have while they act. While they act. And what kind of freedom that can be. But a freedom which was wholly detached from action. You couldn't have any freedom at all would not, to my mind, be freedom. There have been conceptions of freedom, not my conception, in history in which you could be free. Epictetus, who was a Roman philosopher and a Stoic, was himself a slave. And he said a slave can be freer than his master or her master. What he meant by that was the master might be irrational, stupid, crazy, whimsical, frivolous. The slave could be uh, governed uh, in his or her Um, life by reason. So the slave in that sense could be freer than the master. But that's actually not the view of freedom I take myself. My view is that the slave is unfree. The slave might be inwardly um, uh, uh, a more refined and highly developed human being than the master. Um, uh, But the slave isn't free. Um, And if you say, well, what proof have I got of that? Well, behavior is a proof. If you live as I did for a while in the, um, uh, in, in the, in the American South, you'll find um, lots of uh, accounts of slaves running away to try and reunite families that had been um, broken by slavery. You'd find lots of protests, lots of histories. You find, in other words, they didn't identify with their condition of slavery. They rebelled against it. Um, that's just a fact, um, too. So they weren't free even though they might have been, by the way, and I'm sure some of them, many of them were actually, more highly developed human beings, inwardly and in their characters and personalities and minds, than the people who lorded it over them. Um, Asimov, well, uh, I wonder, you know, is the answer that we should study post-Kantian critical philosophy? Well, if we forced the head of, if we compelled the head of Berlusconi's media operation. You say, look, this is absolutely disgraceful the way you're putting this magnificent body of thought to these nefarious uses. You're going to have six months of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Baudrillard, of, uh, you're, going to have, you're going to have six months of um, critical philosophy and at the end of it you'll see the light. Um, I don't believe, I mean, in other words, the central there are various theories of false consciousness. There are various theories of um, and, and arguments about how uh, consent is manipulated and opinion is generated by various types of manufacture, all of which I think, by the way, are, uh, can be defended to some degree and have some degree of reality to them. But the idea that once someone pierces the veil, once they've rid themselves of false consciousness, they'll have these emancipatory goals, as I, I think it's just um, false many counter-arguments um, uh, to that, many counter-examples, and um, probably... I mean, what it implies is that this um, head of Berlusconi's media outfit was kind of some, some kind of in error or ignorance or somehow hadn't sort of grasped what to do. I don't think that at all. I think that um, they simply had different goals. And that will, that will happen quite continuously. It might be that if you were a radical in that society, you would identify that person as an enemy or as an obstacle. That might be the case. But, um, and you might want to resist their influence and their power. I might have good reason to, but it wouldn't, there wouldn't be a situation in which they could somehow be illuminated, enlightened by some kind of intellectual um, training or, or revolution. Okay, one more batch of questions, I think. Then we finish. Um, gentlemen in the front row. 
Thanks very much. I'm interested in, in the um, Guy Debord point, actually. You brought it up again just then. Um, the point being that his ideas were used for, for harmful means. I think they call it recuperation. Sorry, say that again. I didn't catch recuperation. that. <laughs> no, so I, my, my question was, um, is there not a, a chance that your ideas could be used for harmful means? Sure. The ideas that collective decisions can't be made, mm. for instance, climate change, things like that, would be used simply to, for people to say, let's give up. Not a danger, a certainty. If anybody takes any notice of them at all, of course, they might be they might ignored. Yes. Thanks. Um, since you mentioned austerity earlier, I, don't, I hope you don't mind if I shoehorn in a political question. Uh, you recently wrote in the New Statesman that Labour using Thomas Piketty was bound to fail because uh, his book doesn't suggest a, a solution or a mechanism uh, to solve the problems that it diagnoses. Uh, can I ask whether you think uh, Joseph Stiglitz's Price of Inequality is perhaps a better text to turn to, and if not, is there anyone on the left at all with anything constructive to say? Okay. <laughs> Hi there. Uh, I'm personally of the opinion that um, if you... Any, anything that takes away from you being in control of your own personal... Uh, not destiny, but you know your own path. Whether it's um, a controlling partner or, or uh, overzealous religion, or something that means that you can step back from sort of making the the, the, the decisions. Excuse me, is bad for if not the soul, then your personal development. Um, do you think it goes to follow that if you're not making the decisions in your life, then naturally somebody else must be? And do you have an opinion mm. on that? Thank you. I'll try and respond to each of these relatively briefly. Piketty, or Piketty. Um, I tried reading the book, but I lost interest towards the point where he said, the solution is global redistribution. Now, why did I lose interest at that point? Because he sees, and I think he's right about this, actually, that some of, that most, that some of the worst and greatest inequalities in the world could only be remedied by globally enforced policies because if you don't have globally enforced policies, capital can flee there'll be different regimes, there'll be different uh, uh, capital can always escape um, and, and, and go somewhere else um, but is there anyone among you who really believes really, I mean, not as a hobby or a, or a dream that um, at a time when um, war looks like spiraling at a higher level in Europe at a time when I don't think it's a new Cold War I think that's just a vulgar phrase but at a time when you could have a serious uh, conflict between Russia and um, the West or whatever the West now is at a time when there are many other fundamental conflicts in the world does anyone really believe in the possibility of a global entity which would uh, uh, remove, which would redistribute wealth from, say, China, the affluent parts, to other parts of the world, from America to the poorest part of the world, from Europe? And how would this, how would this entity um, square with the democratic wishes that were expressed by the various polities where democracy existed? Do you really believe that? I, what we have at the moment is a, is a fragmented world in which, which is becoming more fragmented, in which 
um, what globalization has produced is not convergence on any set of institutions or policies, but as I argued actually years and years ago, uh, back with my book, um, uh, False Dawn, greater fragmentation, because the trouble with globalization, a kind of global free market, is that it does produce great imbalances against the background in which there is no authoritative entity and there isn't going to be. So that's when I lost interest. I mean, he clearly perceives, he says, these can only be resolved, not just at a European level, he doesn't even say that, he says at a global level, there is no entity uh, capable of doing that. It doesn't mean you can do nothing. Different states, different association states can do various useful things, but Global inequality, there's no entity which can resolve it. And at the moment, I'm not saying it's impossible there ever should be, maybe, but at the moment, it's more unlikely than it's been for the last 30 or 40 years because the level of conflict in the world and the level of dissensus and fragmentation is greater than it's been um, uh, uh, in the past. The other thing, of course, is that many societies harbor um, dangerous movements, extremist movements. For example, the movements of the far right are stronger in Europe now than they've been for about 20 years in many European countries, including quite big countries like France um, and Hungary, a smaller country, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, grief. What, what are these? Where do these? Do these vanish? Do they fade away? Do they, are they somehow dealt with by this, this international, um, uh, this global authority? I really can't um, see it. Um, Personal development, well, um, I might sound paradoxical to put it like this, but the role that people, that individuals give to choice in their lives, I sort of leave them to choose. I mean, there may be people who want, and it's a perfectly understandable and legitimate goal, to be free of the control of others, whether they be controlling partners or schools or churches or political parties or states, and they may, and that may be their conception of freedom, maybe to, so to speak, enhance the control they have over every aspect of their lives. Um, there may be others who choose to surrender control. I don't mean to a controlling partner, but to some other institution or authority that they accept. People have done that in religious terms for um, uh, many, many centuries. And there are secular versions of that sometimes in certain types of therapy, certain types of communal living where people surrender their autonomy to the other members of the group to some extent so that the decisions are taken, not by all of them separately and independently, but by some process within the group. And that can have secular, it has had many secular, that's a choice you can, you can make. You can also leave the group um, if, if you don't like it. So I wouldn't want to prescribe on this. And in general, I guess one of the features of the way I approach these things is to prescribe as little as possible. I don't like being prescribed on or prescribed at. So I don't prescribe on others. Um, I leave these decisions where they actually properly should be in, um, in, in people's um, um, own, own hands. Can you remind me, of some, talking about Guy Debord, again, was it, was it you at the front? What, what exactly was the question? Just remind me. That your ideas might be used for... Oh, yeah, good. Well, that's... <laughs> as well. um, it's true of all ideas when they're put out into the melee and noise of the world that they get used for whatever purposes people want to use them. It's an absolute, you can't avoid that any more than you can avoid misunderstanding. 
um, you know, I can adamantly say repeatedly that I take a certain view, and I can confidently expect that the day after it'll be said that I said the opposite. But even if I give a particular view and it's correctly reported, in this respect, it's not about me, it's about all ideas, all... Um, uh, 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 they can be interpreted uh, in a variety of a variety of um, different ways. That's just the nature of. Uh, I mean, I try to um, counter again this to some extent by saying, as I said earlier on, I'm not intending to convert anyone or persuade anyone. I sort of rather feel like that in that context. I wouldn't make such a comparison. It's rather impious, but like Brian in the Life of Brian. Have any of you seen that film? He says, "Think for yourselves." And everyone takes off the and says, think for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> we'll think for ourselves. Uh, I find I'm almost in that, in, that, in that kind of position. But that is, in fact, my view, not to listen to anyone as an authority, and certainly not me. And I don't claim for my views any academic authority, philosophical authority. They're simply what I think. You can read the book. If it's useful to you um, in some ways, even if you disagree with every single word in it, I'll be, I'll be uh, pleased. If you come away from thinking that it's completely worthless, that's okay too. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Uh, apologies to those of you who didn't get to have your questions answered. Um, Professor Gray will be signing books outside in the foyer, so you might get some of your questions answered then. Um, I'd like you to join me in thanking Professor Gray again for his talk. Thank you.